Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, Second Kings chapter two. Last week's lesson in Second Kings chapter two led us up to the famous and mysterious account of Elijah's translation into heaven. And we'll look at that event closely today. But much more is going on in this chapter than only that. For one thing, we see that the end of an era is approaching. Eliyahu's time as the preeminent prophet to perhaps ever live, and, and certainly Elijah is the epitome of all Old Testament prophets. Well, this year is coming to a close. And the transition to Elisha as his replacement is now underway. Now, Elisha will do many miracles. He'll have a great effect in Israel during his lifetime. But the loss of Elijah means that the end of the era of the spirit of prophecy has arrived. And only a tiny handful of men are going to be given the spiritual gift of prophecy now for centuries to come. The many prophet guilds that we have been reading about are going to diminish. And so more and more of whatever becomes known of God's word among the people of Israel is going to be transmitted more like it is now in our time through God's already written word. That is to say, as we move along in the Bible, and especially as, as we arrive at the New Testament, the term to prophesy will be linked to a great measure to teachers of God's word, rather than to men, prophets, who receive visions and dreams and new oracles of revelation from above. And yet, we do know from uh, these same prophets that as the end times approaches, the spirit of prophecy is not gone forever. It's going to revive. And as the prophet Joel says, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Are we there yet? I don't think so. I don't see evidence of true biblical style prophets announcing God's oracles wherein humanly unknowable events are predicted with great detail and then they happen exactly as foretold. Now as we pick up with our story today, Eliyahu and Elisha, Elijah, and Elisha have left the prophet colony in Jericho. They've passed through the Jordan to the east bank by means of a miraculous parting of the waters as Elijah smacks the flowing river with a rolled up prophet's cloak. And as they walk, Elisha asks for a parting gift of a double portion of the same spirit of prophecy as Elijah possessed. 
Elijah says he can't promise such a thing to him because he doesn't control it. But that if Elisha is able to see the actual event of Elijah being taken away, then his request has been granted by God. So, open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 11. That is page 402 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Second Kings chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Suddenly, as they were walking on and talking, there appeared a fiery chariot with horses of fire. And as it separated the two of them from each other, Eliel went up into the heavens in a whirlwind, and Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Then he lost sight of him. And seizing his clothes, he tore them in half, and then he picked up Eliyahu's cloak, which had fallen off of him, and standing on the bank of the Yarden, the Jordan, he took the cloak that had fallen off of Elijah. He struck the water and said, Where is Adonai, the god of Eliyahu? But when he actually did strike the water, it divided itself to the left and to the right, and then Elisha crossed over. When the guild prophets of Jericho saw him in the distance, they said, The spirit of Eliyahu does rest on Elisha. And advancing to meet him, they prostrated themselves on the ground before him. And they said to him, Here, now, your servants include fifty strong men. Please, let them go and look for your master in the event that the spirit of Adonai has taken him up and then set him down on some mountain or in some valley. And he answered, Don't send them. But they kept pressing him until finally embarrassed, he said to send them. So they sent 50 men, and for three days they searched, but they didn't find him. And on returning to him where he was waiting in Jericho, he said to them, I told you not to go, didn't I? And the men of the city said to Elisha, My lord can see that this is a pleasant city to live in, but the water's bad so that the ground is causing miscarriages. Bring me a new jug, he said. Put salt in it. And they brought it to him. And he went out to the source of the water and threw salt into it and said, This is what Adonai says. I have healed this water. It will no longer cause death or miscarrying. The water was healed. And it has remained healed to this day in keeping with Elisha's spoken word. And then Elisha left to go up to Bethel. And as he was on his way up the road, some boys came out of town and began making fun of him. Go on up, Baldy! Go on up, Baldy! And he looked behind him and he saw them and he put a curse on them in the name of Adonai. Whereupon two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on from there to Mount Carmel and then returned to Shomron, which is Samaria. Well, as they were walking and conversing, suddenly the apparition of a fiery chariot and horses appears. And it serves at first to separate Elisha from Eliyahu, as though Elisha was being told, this far and no further for you. And then in typical biblical fashion, we're told in abrupt terms that Eliyahu ascended to heaven in a whirlwind. That's it. 
That's all there is to the description of this event that took almost a whole chapter to set up. Therefore, it's easy to understand why over the centuries there's been so much speculation written and preached over exactly what did happen. What does it mean? But let's see if we can look at this event for what it was and then glean all that we can from it. First of all, notice that unlike practically every painting that some of history's greatest artists have rendered about this story, Elijah is not said to have ridden off skyward in a fiery chariot. Rather, it says, a whirlwind took him up. But to peel that onion back another layer, the English term whirlwind itself is a stretch. The Hebrew word is serah, and it means storm wind, strong wind. And I think to obtain what we're meant to understand from this strange event, that for God's good reasons he wanted recorded, he wanted it handed down to all of his current and future followers, we need to see if we can find a pattern present in it that presents us with this same kind of imagery. I believe there is one that stands out. In Genesis 15, we have the story of God speaking to Abraham. And first the Lord tells him that his descendants will become oppressed foreigners in a land that is not theirs. And next that God will judge that oppressed nation and rescue Abraham's descendants and they will leave with many of that nation's possessions. And finally that they will go to a territory that God is setting up, setting aside just for them, the land of Canaan. And the seal of guarantee of this covenant was that an animal was slaughtered, a blood sacrifice, and it was, we're told that the meat was divided into two piles. And then we read this in Genesis 15:17. After the sun had set, there was a thick darkness and a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared which passed between these animal parts. See, the smoking firepot and the flaming torch are meant to describe a theophany, an appearance of God, like the burning bush. And here we not only see the typical characteristics of a biblical God appearance, which centers around fire, but we also see a division and a separation being affected. In the case of the pile of sacrificed animal meat, for instance. And it is the Lord who is doing the dividing. The division of the sacrificed meat pile is an illustration of God dividing Abraham and his, his descendants away from everyone else to form a new people set apart for himself. So in Elijah, our Elijah story, the chariot of fire drawn by horses of fire are a theophany of Yehovah, which we can equate then to the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. And we're told that the fiery horses and the chariot divided and separated Elijah and Elisha from one another. And Elijah and Elisha were both special men, but Elisha was not on Elijah's level. Eliyahu was as special for his time 
as Moses was for his, and that Yeshua would be for his time. Moses, Elijah, and Yeshua were all divided and separated from other humans. They were all set apart for unique service to God. We see this same symbolism of fire for God's presence used in a number of other places in the Bible. And some also include the element of wind, as we see in the Elijah story. For instance, in Psalm 104, 3 and 4, You make the clouds your chariot. You ride on the wings of the wind. You make the winds your messengers and fiery flames your servants. Isaiah 66.15 For look, Adonai will come in fire. His chariots will be like the whirlwind to render his anger furiously, his rebuke with blazing fire. Habakkuk 3.8 Adonai, is it against the rivers, against the rivers that your anger is inflamed? Is your fury directed at the sea? Is that why you ride on your horses and drive your chariots to victory? So in these various passages that speak of God and of actions taken by Him, we see that the standard symbolisms of war chariots and horses and fire and storm wind are all used. And that is what we get, of course, in our story of Elijah being taken up by God. Now, did Eliyahu ascend into heaven where God lives? Or into the heavens where the stars hang suspended? Or into the heavens of our atmosphere where the clouds float? After all, the vehicle that took him, wherever it was, was a storm wind that's only present in the same realm that clouds float, our atmosphere. The same Hebrew word, shamaim, is used to indicate all three of these places. Because in the ancient mind, they were all interrelated. Exactly where one of these three places ended and the next began was unclear. In medieval times, and still in relatively modern times, we have religious paintings of angels and of God himself floating on the clouds that are meant to indicate heaven, the place where God lives. So it's difficult to know just what the author of Second Kings had in his mind. Even the most ancient of Hebrew sages had problems with trying to understand this scripture passage about Elijah. While they had little insight into what heaven might have looked like, they certainly understood that it was a spiritual place. And so Elijah could not have ascended bodily into God's dwelling place. So some sages say his body was consumed by the fire of the chariot and his soul continued on to heaven. (coughs) Other prominent Hebrew sages say that Elijah was transported to a special place that God had prepared for him. I tend to agree with the latter. I believe that Elijah was taken away to Abraham's bosom. where the righteous dead 
were safely housed until Messiah came to atone for their corrupted condition and then set them free to be in heaven with God. Yet, Elijah apparently didn't suffer death as we think of death. Rather, there was some kind of a miraculous separation of his body from his soul or spirit that didn't involve the typical dying process of our, our organs ceasing to function or some sudden violent body destruction. I think Elijah's experience might very well be akin to what the separation of soul from body is going to be like in the coming rapture. An equally mysterious and rationally unexplainable event. Now, what might not have struck Elisha immediately as he observed this miraculous taking away of Eliyahu was that the mere fact that he could observe it meant that the Lord had granted to Elisha that double portion of the spirit of prophecy that he had asked Elijah for. See, what happened was a spiritual event. It wasn't a physical event. What the Lord allowed Elisha to witness was a vision of sorts. And Elisha was overcome with awe at what his spirit saw. And as it was happening, Elisha shouted out, Abba! Abba! My father! My father! And I agree with most rabbis who say that he meant that in the sense of master or teacher. See, it was a common epithet in that era that a teacher called his students his sons and that the students called their teacher father. It was a sign of respect and it made it clear who was senior, who was junior in, uh, in the authority hierarchy. And in the Middle East to this day, the position of the father in the family is as the unquestioned authority that holds sway over his entire household. It doesn't matter if the son is fully adult, even middle-aged. In the Middle Eastern hierarchy, he's still subject to his father. So the issue is as much or more about authority than it is about family intimacy or affection. So suddenly now the vision ends as quickly as it had begun and yet it was very real. Elijah, Elisha's longtime master was gone. Showing grief, Elisha rips his clothing as a customary mourning ritual. Now verse 13 explains that as much as this was a spiritual event it wasn't only Elijah's soul that was departed. So was his body. And again reminding us of the scant biblical passages about the rapture. Whereby two were in the field working, suddenly one's gone. And the other is left behind. Even his clothing went with Eliel. Except for his prophet's mantle. And seeing it lying on the ground, Elisha picked it up, he put it upon his own shoulders, and this rightfully acknowledged Elisha as Eliyahu's successor. Now it's important for us to realize that the term prophet speaks of an office. 
It's not about the person. The prophet's cloak or mantle is the symbol of the office of the of prophet. A person can get plugged into an office that has a lot of power and authority. That person can succeed, they can fail, they can behave in a variety of ways that's either appropriate or inappropriate for his or her office. For instance, President of the United States is an office. And every few years, a new person is given temporary hold of that office. And we have had office holders who did well, others not so well. Elijah was merely a man, but he was divinely given the office of prophet. And at times, he did well. And at other times, he did poorly. Now, Elisha was the office holder. Well, it's here that I'd like for us to take a brief detour to the New Testament, as I promised you last week that I would. I think this is a good time to make a couple of connections that also answers some difficult questions. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1245. We are going to read verses 1 through 13 together. Matthew chapter 17. Six days later, Yeshua took Kepha, that's Peter, Yaakov, and his brother Yochanan John and led them up to a high mountain privately. And as they watched, he began to change form. His face shone like the sun. His clothing became as white as light. Then they looked and they saw Moses and Elijah speaking with him. And Kepha said to Yeshua, It's good that we're here, Lord. I'll, I'll put up three shelters if you want. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the Talmudim, the disciples, heard this, they were so frightened they fell face down on the ground. But when Yeshua came and touched them, but then Yeshua came and touched them, he said, Get up, don't be afraid. So they opened their eyes and they looked up and saw only Yeshua by himself. And as they came down the mountain, Yeshua ordered them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Talmudim asked him, Well, then why do the Torah teachers say that Elijah must come first? And he answered, On the one hand, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. On the other hand, I tell you that Elijah has already come. And people did not recognize him, but did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man, too, is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was talking to them about Yochanan the Immerser, John the Baptist. I wanted to get the entire context for this passage, even though we're not going to discuss every aspect of it. The part... I want to highlight was this famous section that describes Yeshua's mysterious meeting on a mountaintop with two people from the ancient past. 
of Israel. Moses and Elijah in their spirits and Yeshua, who of course is still alive, in some kind of equally glorified form. The New Testament doesn't seem to directly give us the significance of this awesome happening. Yet there were eyewitnesses to pass it along. And here the writer of Matthew thought it was important enough to record it for posterity without seeming to understand its significance. Interestingly, other parts of this event are also reported and the significance is either explained or it's self-evident. For instance, we have the Father from heaven stating that Yeshua is His Son and people ought to pay attention to Him. Therefore, Yeshua's authority and His divinity is established and it's made clear. We also have the matter of equating Elijah with John the Baptist in the sense that John the Baptist was a prophet who announced the appearance of the Messiah. But back to our basic challenge. Why did Elijah and Moses appear together with Christ? Why? And they did it semi-publicly. Then it was recorded for us to be able to know about it. But without any explanation for that appearance. Obviously the Lord God arranging for the visible spirits of Eliyahu and Moshe to appear as physical beings alongside Jesus was something of extreme importance, but what? What did it mean? What did it signify? Well, I think I have a solution for this that will we'll stand scrutiny. And it's because it relates so closely to Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount and a particular passage that is often spoken in Torah class that I want to remind you of it by quoting from Matthew 5:17 through 19. Here it is. Don't think I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have come not to abolish but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a yud or a stroke will pass from the Torah, not till everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these mitzvot, these commandments, and teaches others to do so, well, they will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Don't think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. That's the portion of the verse I want to focus on. Here in Matthew 5, Yeshua explains that he didn't come to do away with the Torah, the law, and or the prophets. Far from it. He held a symbiotic relationship to them. And so rather than do away with them, he came to fulfill all the principles that they had established. And while Yeshua, the law, and the prophets, they can all be talked about individually, in fact, they all work together as a unity to bring about God's saving plan. And, says Messiah Yeshua, until the present heavens and earth are replaced with a future and new heavens and earth, all three elements, the law, the prophets, and the Messiah, they shall remain 
and they shall continue to work together symbiotically. In fact, even this future advent of a new heavens and a new earth, when that symbiotic relationship of law, prophets, and Messiah is finally changed or perhaps broken, all of that is prophesied in Isaiah. In Isaiah 65:17, For look, I create new heavens and a new earth. Past things will not be remembered. They will no more come to mind. Later in the New Testament, this prophecy is repeated by John the Revelator in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away and the sea was no longer there. See, it's at this point that the old heavens and the old earth are gone and they're replaced with new ones. And it's at this point that it can no longer be said that the Torah, the law, and the prophets are to remain unchanged. So what has this to do with the story that is commonly known in Christendom as Christ's transfiguration? When Yeshua began to radiate light, and at the same time Moses and Elijah mysteriously and without explanation appeared. It's actually quite straightforward. Moses is the ultimate symbol and mediator of the law, of the Torah. And Elijah is the supreme symbol and possessor of the spirit of prophecy in the Old Testament, if not the entire Bible. And then we have Yeshua as the divine Messiah who's going to bring together all the purposes to which the law and the prophets pointed. And those purposes are to bring about redemption. So in Matthew 17, on an unnamed mountaintop in the Holy Land, we have the supreme symbols of the law, Moses, of the prophets, Elijah, and of the divine Redeemer, Yeshua, standing together in a further symbiotic gesture of their intimate, inseparable, and inalienable bond. I have no doubt that this is what all followers of the God of Israel are to understand from that amazing meeting. And while in Matthew 17 this principle is explained symbolically, Yeshua had already explained it verbally in Matthew 5. Let's get back on track. With Elijah having lost his mantle, and now it's on Elijah's shoulders. Elisha heads back, uh, Elisha rather heads back towards Jericho. He approaches the Jordan River. He takes his mantle, as Elijah had done, but hours earlier. And so he rolls it up to mimic a staff, and he smites the water. It parts so that he can cross on dry land back to the West Bank. But as he does... He looks heavenward. He asks a question. Where is Adonai, the God of Eliyahu? Now, I find that an extremely odd question. Elisha, a great prophet, asks Jehovah where he is. 
In fact, for me, it makes no sense. It was common knowledge, even among the simplest country folks, that Yehovah dwells in heaven. The issue can be better addressed when we look at the Hebrew, and it seems that for some reason, most English translation have chosen, uh, translations have chosen to leave out two key Hebrew words. Op, who. Op, who. And in the ancient biblical Hebrew, it is well known that these words mean also he. Therefore, adding back in what was dropped, we get, Where is Adonai the God of Eliyahu? Also he. In other words, God has obviously taken Elijah someplace, and they've gone together. So, where's that place? Elisha's knee-jerk reaction is not to think that God took Elijah to heaven, God's dwelling place, but to some unknown location here on earth. And then in verse 15, we're reminded of these 50 younger guild prophets who snuck along just out of sight, following Eliyahu and Elisha from a distance to try and see what was going to happen. It never occurred to them that even if they'd been standing right beside Elisha, they still would not have been able to observe this event because it was an event that was in the Spirit. And the Lord only enabled those that He wanted to see it, to see it. And when they saw that Elisha was returning alone, their immediate thought was quite noble and loyal, but it was misplaced. They asked for Elisha's permission to go search for his master, Elijah. They feared that for some unknown reason, Yehovah might have taken him up only to, to deposit him someplace else out there in the wilderness, thus he might need rescuing or perhaps that Elijah had decided to wander off into the desolate desert to meet God, and now he's in a bad way. Elisha told them they shouldn't go. But since they were headstrong enough not to stay back in Jericho like they were originally instructed by Eliyahu, their passions wouldn't allow them to take no for an answer. So after begging sufficiently and likely figuring that the prophet guild might suspect foul play if they didn't go and see for themselves, Elisha relented. After all, while it might not have meant much to the community at large, among the hundreds or more likely thousands of prophets that formed the several prophets' guilds and colonies, Elisha would have become their de facto leader. So one could imagine a reason for doing away with one's rival. They went and they searched high and low for three days, but of course without any luck. And finally they gave up. They returned to Elisha, who was staying with the other prophets in Jericho. Now he didn't have a lot of sympathy for them. And he simply said, told you not to go. The chapter now turns to several miracles that Elisha performed that establishes him among the people as the preeminent prophet of Yehovah in Israel. 
And just as Solomon was challenged to demonstrate his wisdom almost immediately after assuming David's throne, so now Elisha would be put to the test to see if the Lord had indeed given him an extra measure of the spirit of prophecy, thus making him the appropriate replacement for Elijah. And the first test naturally occurs in Jericho, where he was staying. And the people of the city, they come to Elisha, and they explain how beautiful their location is. How conducive it is to growing crops and vineyards. But for some reason, the water was bad. And bad is defined as causing miscarriages of human women and of female animals. Now the words, in English especially, can be a little confusing because of a dubious translation. The passage seems, that seems to say, uh, then seems to say that the ground is causing miscarriages. The men of the city said to Elisha, My Lord can see that this is a pleasant city to live in, but the water is bad, so that the ground is causing miscarriages. That doesn't make any sense. Because the problem is said to be the water. See, the issue is that the word that's being translated in English as ground is Eretz. And that is more commonly and properly translated into English as land, as in the land of Israel. The most common word used for ground or soil in the Bible is Adama. And that word's not present here. So the idea is that the community lived in the land of Jericho. And it was experiencing miscarriages by females and they concluded that it was due to the bad water source that was in their land, their only water source. And Elisha tells the people to get him a new container and to put salt in it. Then he took it, he went to the water source and he threw the salt in the water. And then he turned to the people and he gave them an oracle that he credited as being directly from Jehovah. I have cured this water. There shall no longer be from it death and mourning. And in verse 22, he testifies to the fact, uh, it testifies to the fact that history proves that from that moment forward, the water became pure and the miscarriages within the community of Jericho ceased. Now, just a brief explanation. The requirement for a new container for the salt was somewhat formulaic because it symbolized a new work of God in the sense that something was going to be made as new and unadulterated. Therefore, it would be wholly improper that a container that had been previously used for something common would now be utilized for something holy as a direct work of God that's characterized as a new work. This God principle is of course carried across to the New Testament and one place that it is present is in Christ's parable in Luke 5. I'll read it to you, you don't have to turn there. 
Luke 5, verses 36 through 39. Then he gave them an illustration. No one tears a piece from a new coat and puts it on an old one. If he does, not only will the new one continue to rip, but the piece from the new one won't match the old. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and be spilled, and the skins too will be ruined. On the contrary, new wine must be put into freshly prepared wine skins. Besides that, after drinking old wine, people don't want new because they say the old's good enough. Now salt was seen in ancient times as a highly important substance. It could generally be called a purifying agent that also had the ability to arrest decay. Thus it was used daily in religious services as an agent of incorruptibility and of purification. In our case, the salt was no more than a visible symbol of its physical and its spiritual qualities. God miraculously performed the water purification. The salt was merely symbolic of that fact. Well, sometime later, Elisha leaves Jericho to go and visit another prominent prophet's guild that was located in Bethel. Bethel. But as he was traveling there, he was accosted by some youths. Now, these would have been mid to late teens. <coughs> Pardon me, because the Hebrew word used for these youths is n'ar. And the complete Jewish, uh, rather the uh, King James Version says little children. And that is simply not what n'ar means. N'ar means youths. Now these youths taunted Elisha. I have no doubt Elisha wore a strange clothes, as did Eliyahu. But the brunt of their insulting language was to mock his baldness. And the passage explains that he saw, 42, saw the 42 youths and he cursed them. First, getting back to our Hebrew, the word used in English is cursed but it's translating the Hebrew word kalal. And indeed that word means curse, but not in the sense of putting a curse on somebody. Rather, it means to belittle. It means to, to demean. The Hebrew word that does mean to put a curse on somebody is nakav. So what he did was to chastise them harshly and put them in their place and he also invoked Jehovah's name likely letting them thoroughly understand that as a prophet of Jehovah whatever they did to him was the same as doing it to God because he represented God and they full well knew it not unlike those two groups of 50 soldiers and captains who got all burned up for coming to arrest Elijah, but they fully understood that Elijah was God's man. The result was two female bears suddenly appeared out of nowhere and mauled that gang of 42 insolent youths. Now some English translations will say the bears killed the 42 youths. That's not in the text. No doubt, some probably died from the mauling. 
Others injured. Others likely escaped with not much more than a scare and a real horror story to tell their friends. Here is a classic example of nature being supernaturally ordered by God to act. It reminds us of Moses and Pharaoh in Egypt when things that occurred naturally in nature were used in supernatural ways that were usually several times their typical ferocity in order to bring about God's wrath. Well, after this, Elisha left for Mount Carmel, Elijah's old stomping grounds, and then he went on to Samaria, Shomron, the capital city of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. Actually, according to 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 32, he owned a home in Samaria. So that's why he was going there. All right. Next week we'll begin chapter 3.